a trip to Alaska. I've been here for, I'm starting now my 28th year here at Cornerstone Church. And the church uh, gave us a trip to Alaska to celebrate. I think they wanted to get rid of us, I think. Yeah. Hey, if you want to get rid of us and send us to Alaska as many times as you want, that's okay. But man, God's creation is amazing. Absolutely beautiful. All right, so I got a question. First of all, do you have your phones off? Now everybody check. Because I talk to people all the time. Do you have your phone off? Yeah, oh yeah, Pastor, we got it off. And it's ringing halfway through the service. So check your phones. Make sure they're off if you would. If you're at home watching this, silence your phone too, just so you could be one of us. All right? I think that'd be fantastic. So that's out of the way. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Why are you here right now? If you're tuning in through YouTube or Facebook or uh, whatever way, why are you listening to this right now? Or why are you watching this right now? Now, I really want you to answer that. It's not just a question that, you know, hurry up, get to the sermon. I really want you to think about that. Why are you here? And the answers really could be, oh, I don't know, quite a, quite a lot of different answers, right? Some of you are here because you know you're going to get an awesome meal after church. Let's just admit it. <laughs> Some of you are here because you love God. Some of you are here because you need to be here. You had a rough week. And there's something that just happens in your heart when you begin to worship. Things just come back into right order. You get peace coming back in your heart where all that anxiety begins to leave. Well, I will tell you, if you're here to worship God, let me tell you some of the symptomology that you're going to experience, some of the symptoms you're going to see. You're going to have a hunger to get into the Word of God, which we're about to do. You're going to have your Bibles open or be opening them to Romans 14. You're going to be singing not only with your lips, but with your heart. Some of you don't sing. I don't know if you're singing inwardly. Maybe maybe you're conscious, self-conscious about how your voice sounds. I am, to be honest with you. You know, that's my son. That's one of our worship leaders. He can sing so amazingly. I can't even hold the tune. He gets all of it from his mom, who can also sing amazingly. So I don't really like to sing out loud because I know I'm off tune. I've got the curse where I can hear that I'm off tune. I just can't get on tune. So maybe you're like me, and so you're not singing loudly, but are you singing inwardly? And are you connecting what you're singing to the truth of God, or are you just sort of tuned out? Well, if you're tuned out, then you're not here to really worship. You're here for whatever reason. Well, I'll tell you, if you're here to really worship, now listen, I don't mean this to any individual, so let's just establish this right now. If you're here to really worship the King of all kings, you will not come late to church other than an emergency. You just won't. Can you imagine if God came down in human form through Jesus Christ and invited you to his home at 7 o'clock, let's say 5.30, on a Saturday afternoon, do you really think you're going to show up late? There's no way. You will be there early. Because there's nothing more you want than to be in the presence of Jesus. So listen, if you're showing up late habitually, week after week, 
I'm going to tell you right now, you don't really, you're not coming really to worship. You're coming because church is a habit, but it's not driving you. So think about this, because we're about to get into the Word of God, and that's not to, like, make anybody feel guilty. Don't let that do that. That's not the purpose of that. It's to motivate us to think, motivate us to think of our motives, of our motivations. Now, there are, there are, hold on just a sec, there are amazing motivations that can live in our hearts, that can really, really move us. To love Jesus and display that. Here's one of them, ready? It's to really listen to his word when we're ha having it taught to us. So let's get our Bibles out. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And uh, let's get them open to verses 10 through uh, verse 19. And I'm going to read it. And we're going to stand when I read it. Because that's one of the ways that we recognize this is the authority over us. So if you are able to stand... Then everybody stand, and I'm going to wait for you to do that. Now, there are some who cannot stand physically. You don't need to stand, and I know inwardly you are, but I'm seeing some that you can stand, so let's get you up. I'm seeing some of you. Get up. Let's give God authority over our lives by the reading of his word. Here we go. Romans chapter 14. Are we standing? Here we go. Verse, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Can some of you guys come down, down and, and help our friend? Let us not pass judgment any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. All right, you may be seated. Now we've heard the word of God. We've read it. Now let's apply it to our lives. Let's seek to understand it. And I want to help you understand that every single person here, that's you and that's me. Now, I need a couple guys to come down and help him while I deliver this message. So some of you guys, come on down. And if you can tend to what he needs, I would appreciate that if you could do that right now. Mark, you come on down too, and Jaden, if you would. All right, so let me ask you to do something. I want you to listen to what I'm about to tell you. Every single person has a problem with judgmentalism. You do and I do. 
So let's level the playing field, okay? There's not me up here. I know I'm standing three and a half feet off the ground, and you know what? That's an elevated position. But let me tell you something. I struggle, Tim Ackley, lead pastor of this church, with a lot of the same things that you struggle with. I'm not somebody that has made it in life, and I don't sin anymore, and, and you all are sinners. That's not the way it works. We are all in need of the grace of God. Amen? So here's what Simon Macon, a researcher, discovered. He says that we judge a person's character on sight with our eyes under a tenth of a second. Did you hear that? A tenth of a second, we are judging people. There are studies, all right, some of you kids are going to think, well, man, I'm glad I'm just a kid. I'm not an adult. I don't have a problem with judgmentalism. There are studies that show that as early as three years old, children judge whether a person is a nice person or a mean person just from their pictures. Three years old. When I was a youth pastor, which I was for 13 years, three years in Georgia, 10 years here, when I was a youth pastor, we were always told, you've got 28 seconds before a teen makes up their minds whether they like you or not. 28 seconds. So we all judge. It is so present that a lot of us are not even aware that we are doing it. Most of us are not. Let me tell you a little story that happened back in 2010. Happened 2010 over five months, 2011. I went from 248 pounds. I'm only 5'10". I was pretty obese. Down to 189 pounds. I'm going to tell you how I did it. I went through depression. Some people eat when they go through depression. For me, whatever, I did not eat. And I'm losing all of this weight. And I had a, a lady in our church that I absolutely love. I truly love this lady. She came up to me right downstairs in the fellowship hall of this building, right near the exit door. I will never forget this. It shocked me so much. She comes to me and she says to me, Pastor Tim, you've really lost a lot of weight. I said, you know, I really have. And she leaned in and whispered. She goes, you know, I think a fat pastor is such a poor witness. I didn't even know what to say. I love this lady. I truly do. I count her a friend. She doesn't go to our church. They moved, but I still love this lady. I never could hold this against her. You just swallow that one in grace. But I could not believe that. You know what? She judged. You judge, I judge. We all do. So today in Romans 14, we're going to learn what it means to be judgmental and then what the gospel can do about it for each believer's life. Let me give you two points. Number one, judgmentalism has no place in the church. Now look at your text Romans 14, one of the best ways to listen to a sermon is have the Bible open and you read it for yourself. Because look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? 
Now, if you really study God's word, if you know God's word fairly well, this is going to create just a little bit of confusion for you. Because Jesus tells us in John chapter 7, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now we've got Paul telling us in Romans 14 verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? And then you've got Paul elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, For what have I to do with judging non-believers, outsiders, people who aren't Christians? He says, Is it not those inside the church, those who are believers, whom you are to judge? So Jesus and Paul tell us to judge rightly, but here in Romans 14.10, we're condemned if we pass judgment. What's going on? Good point. I'm going to talk about that. You're going to hear about that in the beginning. If you could be quiet, I'll get to it. Here we go. The meaning of the word judgment. The meaning of the word judgment is influenced by the context. All right? Judgment is a, a word translated from the Greek. It can mean one of two things. You ready? Now, you've got to decide where you are in this. It can mean either a critical, condescending spirit... Or, number two, it can mean a discerning spirit. So you can judge with a hypercritical heart, or you can judge with a discerning heart. In fact, both meanings are in verse 13. Can you look at that with me? Look at Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one anyone any longer... But rather decide. You see that word decide? That's the same word for judge. Discern. Never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So don't look at other people and be hypercritical. Look at yourself, Paul says, and examine yourself and see if you are arrogant. See if you are looking down at other people. In other words, you can either be judgmental or you can use your best judgment. Two different things for that word, judgment. In fact, both of them we can do each time we're with people. So here we go. We've got the command to stop being judgmental. Now listen, stop right now. Stop. Stop. I will talk with you afterwards and I'll explain all of this. And I will be glad to answer your questions. Do you hear me? I will come back and we can talk about this after I'm done preaching. Now, I read of a husband. I want everybody to hear this because this is kind of a, a comical story. I read of a husband who believed his wife was growing deaf. And he wanted to prove it to her. So when her back was to him, he very quietly whispered. Everybody get this. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? She gave no response. So he moved a little closer. And he asked her again, can you hear me now? But still no reply. And quietly he edged closer and he whispered the same words, but still no answer. And finally, right behind her, she's sitting in a chair. His lips are to the back of her head. He says, can you hear me now? And she is irritated. And she says to him for the fourth time, yes. See, he, she heard him all the time. He was the one they couldn't hear. Now, I want you to get the point. 
When we are passing judgment on people, are you hearing me? When we are being hypercritical, we are not seeing our own faults clearly. We can see theirs clearly. We want to tell them about their faults clearly, but we cannot see our own. Because here's what's happening. When we are being judgmental, you are looking to try to gain the high ground. And everybody else is lower than you. You are superior to them. They are inferior to you. You are in the right. They are being the wrong. You have elevated yourself to, this, to the judge's seat and pounded the gavel on the person on the court floor below you. Now, are you hearing that? Because now I'm going to tie it really into what's going on. When you and I are judgmental, we have raised ourself, ourselves to the place of God and pronounced guilt on others. That's the problem. And it's destroying the church at Rome. It's dividing the church at Rome. And this is what Paul is addressing. And he says in verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Being judgmental. Now listen, you know you can do this. I know I can do this. Being judgmental is one of the most God-like acts you are ever going to do. But it is not yours, and it is not my right to do it. It is self-inflated power. It is pride and arrogance. It is condemning those whom we think are below us. And the problem is pride, and pride is undetectable to ourselves. Do you realize that you cannot see your own pride? Not until it is revealed. You just can't. I think probably most of the people here, at least a lot of us, if I were to come up to you and say, hey, do you, do you have a battle with pride in your heart? Most of us are going to say no. But you're not the one to answer that. In fact, the people closer to you can answer it quite well. Let me tell you about my wife. You see, our wives, our spouses are unbelievably important to us. And years ago, this is 2004, 2004, so 19 years ago, I was doing a lot of preaching in this church. Our lead pastor was away for a little bit, so I was preaching six out of the eight weeks that he was gone, and I had people coming up to me and said, hey, would you like to start a church? I want to go be in your church. And I knew all of that. I mean, listen, look what you're doing right now. I'm standing up here, and you're all looking at me. Do you know what that can do to a human heart? And I prayed, Lord, don't let me become prideful. Don't let me become arrogant. 
and I really felt like, you know what, God, I'm doing pretty well. I think I'm staying fairly humble in this. We're in bed, Denise and I, that's my wife, and we're going to sleep, and right before we're going to sleep, she's bringing up person after person in our church that we needed to pray for, that we're struggling, and every single person that she named, I had something negative to say about them. She finally looks at me. I'll never forget this. I'm laying on my back. She's laying on her right side. And she looks at me right into my eyes and says, Honey, you have gotten so arrogant. I immediately said to her, No, I'm not. I just know these people better than you. Moments later, we turn off the lights. We go to sleep. I wake up the next morning. The very first thought on my waking mind was her voice going, you have gotten so arrogant. And inwardly I'm going, no, that's not true. I've been praying that I wouldn't be. I'm, I'm praying that I would be humble. I go to my office. I go upstairs. I get on my knees. I'm praying. And I'm having my quiet time in the Word of God. And all I can hear while I'm praying is Denise's voice that God was just echoing into my heart. You have gotten so arrogant. After about 15 minutes of trying to explain away the the arrogant comment inwardly to the Lord going, Lord, I'm not arrogant. Finally, God's voice broke through. And I realized I cannot believe this. I have gotten arrogant. I began to repent of that and ask the Lord to humble my heart again. You see, listen, judgmentalism is one of the most truest evidences of a self-inflated arrogance. And God will use people in your lives. He will use the word of God. He will use his spirit. And he will show you the reality because you cannot see it on your own. But look at verse 13. Judgmental people put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So we're talking about the church at Rome. It's a Christian community. And they desperately needed to see that their judgmentalism was coming from pride. But it wasn't just the judgmental ones. There were others that were looking down. You're so weak in your faith. You judge everything. You're so hypercritical. I'm glad I'm not like that. And they put themselves on a pedestal. So you've got two groups of people. You've got the weak in their faith. You've got the more mature and the strong in their faith and the weak are judging everybody and the strong are looking down their nose at everybody else they were an absolute mess see judgmentalism has no place in the church and it is common to all of us here's my second and my final point look at this one love is to have central place in the church now, it's always important. Listen, I want to invite you, my brothers and sisters, to become students of God's word. Read God's word. But when you do, you need to know the context. Let me tell you why context is important. I'll invite your feedback. One plus one equals what? Say it again. One plus one equals? Is that always true? All right, let's think about that. If I took an eyedropper filled with water and I put a drop of water on a plate, that's one drop. And if I take that eyedropper 
and I put another drop of water on top of that one, I don't get two drops. I get one larger drop. See, one plus one does not always equal two, and there's countless examples of that. It often equals two, but it doesn't always. You need to know the context. That's why it's important to know it. So let's look back a little bit and let's gain our context. Look at chapter 13, Romans 13. If you, are you in your Bibles? Look at chapter 13, look at verse 10. Here's your context. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Here's the context. The context is God wants his church full of his people to love one another. So he addresses in chapter 14 two different groups of people. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So we've got some groups, we've got one group that's despising and judging those who are eating. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. And then you've got another group that is despising those who are abstaining. What on earth is he talking about? One group is judging, the other group is looking down their nose at the ones who are judging. And he says in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What on earth is the context? Well, let's discover it. You ready? We're looking at the first century world. And in Rome, in the Roman Empire, there were all kinds of temples to gods and temples to goddesses. And here's what would happen. You would have worshipers of these gods and goddesses come to the temple. They would bring an animal. They would sacrifice that animal. And the priest would pray over that animal and bless the meat of that animal. And a portion of it, usually the fat portion, some of the choice internal organs, would be put on a fire to sacrifice, present to the God. And then there's a portion that the priest would keep. And then the rest of it was given to the worshiper to go home and to have a feast and celebrate their God. This is all happening in the Roman Empire, all over the empire. So now we've got... A problem for the early church. Because if you're working with somebody who that Friday presented their animal to that God, that false God, which is a demon, and they bring it home and they have a feast and they invite you on Saturday, come on over, we're going to have a feast and celebrate my God. And we're going to eat of the animal that I sacrificed. There were some in the church that said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that animal was sacrificed. It's just an idol. Go and eat the meat. But then there's others that were saying, you can't eat that meat. They had superstition. If you eat that meat, you're going to be tainted. You're going to be cursed. Something bad's going to happen to you. But it gets a little worse. See, they didn't have refrigeration back then. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have refrigerators. So all of this meat is being given to the priests. They have no way of eating it all, and they have no way of preserving it, so they sold it 
to the local market to bring money into the temple. And so now you go to the market and you go to buy meat. And if you're a Jewish person, you're not going to find kosher food. You're not going to find food that is adhering to God's commands in Leviticus 11. You're going to buy food and it might be sacrificed to the idols. So the Jewish people that were now believers were saying, you can't eat that meat. You've got to eat just vegetables. And the people that were saved out of the Roman Empire were going, it's all right to eat that. It's no, it's no problem anymore. All foods are clean. And now you've got groups that whoops, you got groups that are judging one another or looking down at one another. Now let me give you a little bit more background. Leviticus 11. This is so interesting to me and I really want you to understand this. God gives to Israel in Leviticus 11 all of these rules and laws for what kind of meat they can eat, what meats they cannot eat, and how you can prepare that meat, and how you don't prepare that meat. They're called the kosher laws, the dietary laws, all part of the ceremonial law. Now everybody look at me, and your head's gonna swim a little bit, but I'm gonna make it so simple for you. The law of God was divided into three different sections. One of them was the ceremonial law. The other is the moral law, that's the Ten Commandments. And then the civil law, all the laws about how to have a government in Israel. The ceremonial laws are these. When you cook a lamb, do not boil it in its mother's milk. That was actually a law in Leviticus 11. You can't eat insects. You can't eat camels. You cannot eat certain shellfish. You cannot eat your blood with the, your meat with your blood still in it. You've got to cook it. God gave all of these laws. Why? These are the ceremonies that Israel had to do to know that God wants clean people. God wants clean people. The Bible calls it holy. And God wants his people to be different than all the nations around them. Why? Because all of the other nations were bigger than Israel. They're more powerful than Israel. The temptation to assimilate, to go, you know what? I'm going to be like the other nations so that they accept me, so that they don't threaten me. That was a huge temptation. So God gave these laws to Israel to make them different than the nations around them. But he gave them for one more reason. Can I tell you what that is? It's to get them to look forward into the future. Because into the future, God was going to send the Messiah. And the Messiah was going to come. And the Messiah is Jesus Christ. And Jesus will make them clean. In other words, Jesus will be the one that makes you holy. And the moment that you have faith in Jesus... You are made holy. You know what I get asked all the time? I get this question all the time. Well, how were people saved in the Old Testament? How were people saved before Jesus came? I'm going to tell you how they were saved. Romans chapter 4 is so clear. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's always faith. 
It's not keeping the law that saves you. It's the fact that you can't keep the law perfectly. Therefore, God must send someone, Jesus, who can. And the moment you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are saved. Now, some of you, I have to imagine, have never done that. You don't know this yet. Listen, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you're not saved. If you're trying to earn God's favor, if you're trying to work for God's favor, you're not saved and you will never be able to do it. But when you are saved, you are made a new creation. See, the church is divided in Rome. You've got all these people that are saying, you can touch this, you can't touch that. You can eat this, you cannot eat that. It doesn't matter in Mark 7 that Jesus himself declared all foods clean. They were saying, no, you've got to keep all these rules to be saved. And neither group was loving each other. Both of them forgot to pursue, verse 19, what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You know, the church at Rome could hardly have been filled with more diversity. There were Jewish people. There were Gentile people. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. There were men. There were women. There were adults. There were children. There were rich. There were poor. There were masters. There were slaves. There were educated. They were uneducated. There were white-collar, blue-collar. All of this diversity in the church at Rome and all of these differences were constant, constant opportunities to judge and criticize one another. You know, we have a staff team. I don't know if you know that. We've got several people on our staff team. We've got African-American men. We've got Hispanic. We've got Caucasian. In my case, Caucasian. I am so white. We've got Pastor Tony. We've got, uh, pa we got Mark Jefferson. We've got Pastor Johnny. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. This is going to blow some of your minds. Do you know that every one of them have experienced in this church comments directed to them that if they're not outright racism, they have come so close? Here in this church. I can tell you that every one of them handled them with grace, but I get angrier than they do. But we are seeing a church that God is bringing more and more diversity here. And we did not even need to hire a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. We've got the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is teaching us to love. And listen, when we love like Jesus, racial barriers will collapse, and the kingdom of God will be beautifully seen. You know, I wanted to prove that, so I did an experiment. Last year, I personally invited 18 people to my community group, 18 of them. I didn't ask, hey, who would like to be in my community group? I went and I invited strategically. I was doing an experiment. 18 people to my community group. You want to hear who they are? One of them's a Haitian from Haiti. 
One of them's from Mexico, born and raised. One of them born in India. Two of them from Missouri. That's the most diverse you can get. We have three interracial couples. We have people in their 70s, some in their 20s and their 30s. We've got single people. We've got married people, some with grown kids, some literally having babies while our group is going. Not on the spot, but they're pregnant and delivered during last year while our group was together. We were learning to do what Pastor Tony preached last week. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. And I had to learn the lesson. I had to learn. I had to see, can we love one another well enough to drop racial barriers and to be together? I'm going to tell you, it was the most successful community group I've ever had. It was the most successful group. It was amazing. It's been a lesson that I've had to learn. I went to Haiti in 1989. I went to the country of Haiti on a mission trip. And at the time, I had really long hair. I was growing it out. And while we were there, my group leader, Dr. Alan Raby, I will never forget this man, I loved him, came to me young man of about 21 years old, that's how old I was, came to me and said, Tim, you don't know this, but in Haiti, long hair on a man is considered effeminate. And some of the people that we are meeting with, some of the people that we are ministering to, have expressed an offensiveness at your hair. I'm asking you to cut it today. And I said, no. I said, no. I said, I'm only here for two weeks. There's nothing in the scripture that forbids this. It's their problem. They're judging me. It's not my problem. So here's what Dr. Raby did. He opened up the word of God to Romans 14. He read it to me. And he asked me to pray. And do what the Lord asked me to do. I went into my room for about three hours wrestling with God. I was so angry. Until finally, the Spirit of God broke through my hardened heart and showed me I was looking down on my brothers and sisters in Haiti. And I was holding hair up to the point where I would not let it go. I was defending my rights and not willing to let go of them. And as soon as the Spirit of God showed me that, he broke me. In tears, I repented. And less than 30 minutes later, I had my hair cut. And let me take that as we wind down towards the end of this message and take you back to Romans 14, verse 19. Look what it says. Do we have a humble willingness to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Are you willing to give up your rights for the people around you? Well, let me ask you some questions. Do you see other Christians who do not love their wives like they should? Do you see Christians in this church who do not parent like they should? Do you see Christians here in our community 
who do not read the Bible like they should, do not pray like they should, are not growing spiritually like they should, who will drink sometimes beer and wine and you think that you should not and getting tattoos and that's offensive to you. Is there any of this going on in your heart? Can you see somebody and like a three-year-old decide whether they're a good person or a bad person in a tenth of a second? But yet you really don't know them. Instead of passing judgment on them, or looking down on them, can you let the Spirit of God fill your heart with a love for them and a humble patience with them? And I'm going to show you how he does it as we close. And while I do, I'm going to answer our friend's question that he asked at the beginning. How does this happen? How do we move from being judgmental people who look down at our noses at other people to people filled with love. Let me show you how, it, how you do it. Look at verse 10 again. I want everybody to look at verse 10. This is the most important thing I'm going to tell you. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You know, I used to think, I used to believe that the Apostle Paul wrote that to fill us with fear so that we would stop being judgmental, stop looking down our nose, stop our behavior. Now I understand differently. What he is doing is reminding us of the gospel. See, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat. Now listen, Christian, I want you to hear this. And none of us will ever receive any condemnation. Oh, you're going to stand before the judgment seat, believer in Jesus but you will receive his pleasure. You're going to receive his favor. And you're going to, you know why you are? The reason is because God poured out all of his judgment for all of our sin, all of our failure, all of our judgmentalism, all of our arrogance. He poured out all of his wrath and judgment onto Jesus who stood in our place, nailed to the cross. He took on himself our sin in our guilt. So Christian, how can the guiltless, how can the blameless, how can we who have been forgiven for so much hold guilt and blame and sin and judgmentalism over anybody? I mean, how can you look at anybody judgmentally when you understand just how much you've been forgiven and how all of those people's failures and all of your sins they were already atoned for they were already poured out on jesus and when you stand before him at the judgment seat there will be no condemnation he's not going to remind you of all the things you did wrong he's going to love you he's going to remind you what he has done he's going to welcome you into eternity he's going to welcome you as his children so here's the key if you want your judgmental heart to turn to a loving heart here's your key you ready here's the end of the message i'm going to be two more minutes but i'm going to show you the whole key to it and it's going to wrap up the entire series look at jesus throughout the week look at jesus behold him consider him learn about him he ate with sinners he was kind to prostitutes 
He loved swindlers who were called tax collectors. He feasted with the worst. No one has ever been stronger in their faith. No one has ever had more of a right to judge than Jesus. Yet instead of judging them, he gave grace. Instead of condemning them, he lifted them up. Instead of hating them, he loved them. He welcomed them. He did not despise them. He pursued peace in building others up. So think on the great love of Jesus this week. I mean, even right now. Think on how kind he has been to you, even today. Listen, think right now of the things that you have done that have displeased God today. And yet he is not condemning you, Christian. Think on the pain and the sorrow that he endured for us, not only on the cross, but of giving up the rights to all of his power and glory in heaven and coming down into human form as a baby and living and being rejected and despised by so many people, all so that he could take away our guilt, all so that he could atone for our sins, all so that you could be forgiven. When you think of Jesus over and over and over, here's what's going to happen. You're going to find your judgmental, arrogant pride diminishing, and you're going to find your heart filled with a love like Jesus. Now, let me tell you this as I close. Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, he was a Chicago evangelist. He preached in America and he preached over in England. He was phenomenal, led millions of people to the Lord. He was walking along a street one night, one day. Now listen to this. And he was praying. And he was asking God to help him understand the extent of God's love for him. Here's what happened. He wrote about it. He said, I was so overcome by the love of God, it filled me so powerfully that it began, began to become painful. And I began to beg and I began to plead, God, would you relent? Would you stop? I cannot bear this. I cannot take this. There have been several men and women who have experienced that. The overshadowing of the love of God. Have you ever asked God to fill you with his love? If you want that, then look on Jesus. Consider Jesus. Behold his glory and you will be changed from one degree of glory to another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, as we come to a close in this service, Lord, we have seen just how terrible judgmental people can be to a church. And just how terrible people can be who are arrogant and self-righteous and look down their noses at the weak. Lord, we must not be like that. Father, I pray that we would behold you, that we would see, Father, how great your love is for us, that you would send your son, Jesus.
take our sin, to take our guilt, to take our blame onto himself and die on that hideous cross. Lord, I pray that you will so powerfully impress that on me and on everybody in this church, everybody that's listening to this message. Lord, that even when they leave here and whether they're walking around the streets of Easton or going back to Forks or Palmer or the Slate Belt, Lord, wherever they go, that you will not relent, that you will speak, and that you will send wave after wave after wave of the knowledge of your love into their hearts, into my heart, until we beg you and plead with you to relent. And take our prideful, arrogant hearts and move them into loving hearts so that we can love like Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen.